But if you have your Bibles, if you can turn to the book of Mark, the book of Mark, we will be primarily in the chapter 6 this morning. And to give a preface before we begin reading this passage, though this message seem a little brief, if you have your bulletin with you this morning, yes, it says heartbreak and a hometown. And although this message may seem uh, difficult, it may be hard, the message may be a little downtrodden and bleak, there is silver linings in this message. And I hope you all catch them this morning. So if you have your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, before we read our passage this morning, let me go back to Mark chapter 4. So Jesus is teaching his disciples the parable of the sower, or better put, it's the parable of the soils. And what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples is that as the kingdom of God advances and overcomes the kingdom of the world, the darkness of the world, as the gospel is preached to the ends of the earth, the responses and the reactions by people that they will come across will vary. And if you are familiar with the parable of the sower slash soils, you know the soils in which he describes. He says that that the, uh, the disciples will encounter good soil that they will go and share the gospel and people will receive the good news of Christ with great joy. And we will see a faith that is matured and they will grow in their faith and they too will be called to make great the name of Jesus everywhere they go. So they will find people who are good soil. However, the disciples will also come across those who are thorny soil those who will accept the gospel with with interest and go, yeah, that sounds good, that sounds awesome. You know, a Savior sounds pretty awesome. But I've got all these distractions, things that are a little bit more important, things that I I idolize, things that I worship that, you know, quite frankly, the gospel just kind of gets in the way. The disciples will run into people who are thorny soil. The disciples will also run into people who are shallow soil. People who will will pick up the gospel with general interest again, kind of like the thorny soil. But when the rubber hits the road, when things get hard, they're out. Can't handle it. Can't do this. This is too difficult. Jesus demands too much of me. This just isn't the life for me. You know, I enjoy my sin so much more. I would just rather just pass along. And then lastly, the disciples, they will run into those who are described as hard soil or the pathway, if you will. These are going to be people that the disciples will run across. They will come across these people and they will share the gospel with them with joy and humility and gladness. And the people will say no. And that will even vary as well. Either people will reject the gospel with just a passive apathy of, no, I don't care, move along, I've got other things to do, I don't have time to hear the gospel, passive apathy, just don't care. Or, with an aggressive hostility. And Jesus is going to show this to his disciples. This morning we're going to look at our text From a different point of view, we're going to look at the text this morning. We're going to honor the text and the true meaning of the text, but we're going to approach the Scriptures in a different way, with a different perspective, a different camera lens, if you will. And this is going to be through the view of the disciples. 
And Jesus knows, as he has been training his disciples, of course, this goes back to Mark chapter 3, when Jesus calls his apostles to him, he has appointed them, and he's got future plans for them, as we will see in the, in the next section in verses 7 through 13. But what Jesus is doing is he's called his, his apostles, his disciples, and he's training them up. And we see in, in Mark chapter 4 and Mark chapter 5, Jesus has revealed to his disciples, to his apostles, has revealed to them just who he is, that he has all power, wisdom, and authority over all of creation, that he can heal the sick miraculously, that he can calm a storm with just one word, that he can raise the dead back to life. Jesus shows the, the apostles who he is so they can soon go out and make great the name of Jesus. And something that Jesus finds is the best way for his disciples to learn is through firsthand experience. It's one thing to read the textbook. It's one thing to read it and go, hmm, that sounds nice, in an arbitrary kind of way, like let me sit down and think of certain scenarios. Jesus goes, you want to know how it's like, watch me firsthand. Let's go to Nazareth, where Jesus is going to find heartbreak in a hometown. So let's read Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, and we will break this down piece by piece. Mark chapter 6, verse 1 says thus, Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown. So he has left uh, Capernaum, left uh, the various cities, towns, and villages of the Sea of Galilee. He went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. He went to Nazareth. And on the Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense to Jesus. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And Jesus could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So this morning we are going to witness a heartbreak in a hometown. But let me give a little bit more context of, of what we're dealing with here. What is the town of Nazareth? What is this town have to do with Jesus? Why does Jesus go back to his hometown? Why does the town of Nazareth, the people of Nazareth, why do they reject Jesus so strongly? Why are they reacting in such a harsh way? Well, let's get a, a better understanding of the dynamic of this tiny town of Nazareth. So, of course, we know scriptures say that Jesus was born in a little town of Bethlehem. We know that every time Christmas comes around. But he grew up in the town of Nazareth. It says that in Matthew chapter 2, verse 23. His family packs up. They go back to Nazareth where uh, his earthly father Joseph and his mother Mary lived. Uh, Nazareth was a tiny town of about 150 to 200 people at that time. That's itty bitty. 
That is teeny, weeny, itty-bitty, teeny, tiny town. That reminds me of my beautiful hometown of Sentinel, Oklahoma. Because in a town like that, and that kind of size, that kind of capacity, everybody knows everybody. You can't hide. Your parents know everybody. Your grandparents know everybody. Your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents who are now buried in the cemetery, they know everybody. They know everybody, and they know all about your business. They know where you grew up. They know what school you went to. They know all of the drama that is of your family and your family name. They know everything about you. And in the town of Nazareth, it's, uh, the, Daniel Aiken says this best to describe Nazareth. It's a little harsh. But Nazareth, uh, Daniel Aiken says this. He goes, Nazareth was a nowhere town made, up a bunch, made of a bunch of nobodies. Whew, that reminds me of Sentinel, Oklahoma. Uh. But not many good things in Scripture talk about the tiny little town of Nazareth. Of course, Jesus' disciple, Nathaniel, he says, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything, anybody of any social standing come from this teeny, tiny, agriculturally motivated, driven town of a bunch of rednecks and a bunch of hillbillies and so on and so forth? Who could possibly come from Nazareth? And of course, we come to the text this morning and we need to acknowledge that this is not the first time that Jesus, of course, has gone home to his hometown of Nazareth. It says in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus had previously went to Nazareth. He went there and he taught in the synagogues. He taught again with authority, with power and wisdom. And it didn't turn out so good. It actually went very, 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 very badly. Once again, as we will see in, in this story, the people of Nazareth, they are offended by what Jesus teaches them to the point where they try to actually kill Jesus. They try to drive him off of a cliff. Does that sound good? Please don't get any ideas this morning. Don't drive me off of a cliff. But it didn't go so well. But again, Jesus loves the people of Nazareth. He has grown up with these people. He knows these people. He knows their children, their children's children. He grew up with them for over 30 years. He loves these people. So he comes back. This time he comes back with his disciples. And again, we're approaching this text through the goggles, through the lens of the disciples. The disciples are watching Jesus. Jesus wants to teach them firsthand of what happens when you run into hard soil. When you run with, into unbelief. And now let me clarify before we dive into the text. What is unbelief? Unbelief is not equated with doubt. Jesus isn't dealing with doubt in the town of Nazareth. He's not dealing with people who are going, eh, that doesn't sound right, I'm not sure, I don't think so. Jesus is going to run into people who are filled with unbelief, hardened hearts that say no to the truth claims of Christianity, that say no to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus says that you are sinners, you are enemies of God, there is no way that you can save yourself from your sins, they don't believe it. They don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the suffering servant. They say, no, you're wrong. I can't be. He's not dealing with doubt. 
So the first lesson that the disciples learn, the first-hand experience that the disciples learn as Jesus is rejected at Nazareth is this. Lesson one, unbelief will ignore the obvious. If you have notes, we've got notes in the back of your bulletin so you can follow along. But the first lesson is this. Unbelief will ignore the obvious. Let's reread verses one through two. It says, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did he get this thing? Where did he get these things? With what wisdom was this given to him? How much mighty works? How could this be done by his hands? So as Jesus, he goes to his hometown, he begins teaching in the synagogue, and people are hearing him. And he is just revealing the Old Testament. Just revealing how everything points back to Jesus Christ from the Pentateuch from the historical books, from the wisdom literature to the prophetic sayings in the Old Testament, everything is pointing back to Jesus. He is just mapping it out for everybody to see. And look at the response from the people. They are astonished. They are, they are ekpleso in, in the Greek. They are astonished. Better, way, better put, they are blown away. Their minds, blown away. They're absolutely astonished. They take a step back and they go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa. Where, where, where did this come from? Where, where, how are you teaching with such great power and of such great wisdom and authority? Where, where, is this, where is this coming from? Of course, we know that Jesus is empowered by God. He is God. He has been appointed by God to go and make the gospel known to all peoples. But the people's unbelief Ignore the obvious. They hear Jesus teaching in the synagogue. He teaches the truth of God's Word to show them that He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. He is the Redeemer. He is the Restorer. And they just simply step back and go, I don't know what's happening. What is going on? How could this be? Where is this coming from? And they start asking themselves these questions in the crowd. They start asking these questions looking for any other explanation other than Jesus has all power, all, all authority, all wisdom from God and God alone. Like they're thinking, did he just unearth this, this textbook that just taught him all of these things? Did he just run into a complete stranger out on the road that taught him all of these things? How does he have this authority and power and wisdom? They look anywhere they can to try to make sense of what Jesus is telling us. Unbelief will ignore the obvious of the truth of the gospel. And here's what I want you all to write in your notes that's not in your notes. What the master encounters so too will his disciples. What the master encounters, so too will his disciples. Again, we're looking through this from the lens of the disciples because Jesus wants the disciples to know that they are about to be sent out. In verses 7 through 13, he's about to send them out. And of course, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus is going to send them out to the ends of the earth and he knows that they will encounter hard soil. He knows that they will encounter unbelief. He knows that his apostles are going to run into people who will ignore the obvious. And by extension, Jesus wants us 
to know that we will encounter the same thing. That this is nothing new. That if they ignore the obvious with Jesus Christ, if they ignore the obvious of His apostles, they will ignore the obvious with you as well. It should be no surprise. So that's lesson one. Unbelief will ignore the obvious. Lesson two, unbelief focuses on the irrelevant. Let's read verse three once again. Verse three says this. Is this, of course, this is the, the people in Nazareth. They say this. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? Unbelief focuses on the irrelevant. Let me ask you this question. Jesus being the Son of God, the Messiah, the promised Savior of the world from the beginning of time, does Him being a carpenter have anything to do with Jesus being the Son of God? Is Jesus being the Son of Mary, which we'll dive into this in just a moment, does that have anything to do with Jesus being the Redeemer and Savior of the world? Does Jesus' half-siblings, James, Judas, Joseph, and his sisters, have anything to do with him being the Savior of the world? No. No. See, when a person refuses to believe something, they often will look at anything that will support their unbelief even if it has absolutely nothing to do with the truth, if it has, whether it's completely irrelevant. While Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, the people of Nazareth, they brought up Jesus' previous occupation, his mom and his siblings, which had no connection to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior of the world. Let's break this down piece by piece, shall we? So Jesus' previous occupation, they say he is a carpenter. Well, just think for me with just a moment that Jesus had grown up in the town of Nazareth and he is described as a carpenter. The Greek word for this is tekton. And this is an umbrella statement. This is an umbrella term, a very broad term to describe. Basically, a blue-collar builder, craftsman, carpenter. He is a tekton. He is average. He has got a... a unfrilless kind of job it is just he is one of like everybody else but can you imagine just for a moment just for a second the people seeing jesus growing up and he's a carpenter of course he's building farm equipment with his dad the plow goes out who are you going to call of course everything is built out of wood at that time who are you going to call not ghostbusters you're going to call jesus and his dad joseph to come and build to repair to restore farm equipment Of course, they're going to call the carpenter to build furniture. You need a big table with a big family. So you need a big table and chairs. You're going to need furniture. So you're going to call Jesus. You're going to uh, need to build a house. New families coming into town, you know, to make it 152 or 202, whatever. But you're going to have to build a house. Who are you going to call? You're going to call Jesus. Jesus knows how to build. He knows how to work with his hands. And yet... This is a stumbling block for the people of Nazareth to go, is this not the carpenter? Man, he can build a chair. He can build a house. He can build farm equipment. When did he know the word of God through and through? Where is this, you know, teaching with power and authority and wisdom? 
this is, I don't think this was taught at carpenter school. Like, what, what is going on here? Is this not the carpenter? And then they go on. They, they, they say that Jesus is the son of Mary. Now, this can be taken either one or two ways. And I follow the latter. The reason why they ask, is this not the carpenter? Is this not the son of Mary? The reason why they could have t- said it this way was, one, because Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, he had passed away. He had passed away, and, there, and Mary still lives in Nazareth, so they just refer him as the son of Mary. That's a likely possibility, but I follow the later possibility that this was a backhanded slap on Jesus' character and his reputation. See, to be called the son of Mary, typically how a person is addressed is they are referred to as the son of their father. I would be Tanner, the son of Galen. Now, I'm not, the, I'm not Tanner, the, the son of Glenette. That would be very odd. That would be very strange. But to be called the son of your mother, that is the backhanded comment to say, we think, because we talk and we gossip, it's a small town where we know everybody and we know all the secrets. We know what's going on. We had heard from a little bird that Joseph's really not his daddy. We don't know who the dad is. Of course, we know through Scripture. So for them to say the son of Mary, this is a backhanded comment to say, we think you're an illegitimate son. An illegitimate son, no less, should not be teaching with power and authority and wisdom and the synagogue. He should not be standing here saying, pointing the finger and saying, we are all sinners We are enemies of God. We need to repent of our sins and we need to turn to our Savior. Who is this guy? The carpenter, the son of Mary. And then they move on and say, is not all of his siblings here in Nazareth, they make up the bulk of town. And they're just like every other Joe Schmo here. I don't see James teaching with power and authority and wisdom. He's building farm equipment. He's building furniture. He's building houses. His sisters are here. They're nothing special. Why is Jesus here teaching in the synagogue with authority, power, and wisdom? The people of Nazareth, they turned to everything that was irrelevant to Jesus being the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. They turned to everything irrelevant to excuse their unbelief. They did everything in their power to try to cut Jesus down to size so they can excuse their unbelief in him. They diverted their attention away from the truth in order to justify their rejection of Jesus. To, him, or to them, Jesus was just no more than an out-of-his-mind carpenter who has lost his bananas, lost his marbles, And they could not accept who Jesus really was and is, and that is the Son of God. But again, Jesus has got a mission. He is teaching his disciples, and he is teaching his disciples that what the Master encounters, so too will his disciples. The people of Nazareth tried to cut Jesus down to size. Jesus is teaching his disciples, do you expect people to do anything different to you? Would you not expect that as they go and make great the name of Jesus, they share the gospel to the ends of the earth, and they're going to go, 
Aren't you that uneducated fisherman? You can't even read and you can't even write. You had somebody write your gospel for you. How can I believe in what you have to say is true? Are you not a tax collector, Matthew? Weren't you a betrayer of your own people? How could the gospel be true if if Jesus chose somebody like you to share the gospel? What about you, you zealot? You out of your mind, wacko? Jesus entrusted you with the gospel? He's crazy, and you're crazy, and everybody here is crazy. What the master encounters, so too will his disciples. Don't be a fool to believe that you won't be treated otherwise. They will look at you and your past. They will look at you and your story. They will look at you and your family and your family name. Aren't you that person in high school who did this, that, and the other? Isn't that you who put that thing on social media? Isn't that you who got arrested a long time ago? How can I believe that what you say is true? They did this to Jesus. They did this to the apostles. We cannot assume that it's not going to happen to us as well. So unbelief ignores the obvious. Unbelief focuses on the irrelevant. Lesson three, unbelief is easily offended. Unbelief is easily offended. They are good millennials, these people in Nazareth. They are offended easily. I'm offended, as a millennial would say. Easily offended. Let's read verse, verse 3 real fast. It says in the latter part of verse 3, it says, And they took offense to Jesus. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. Unbelief is easily Offended As Jesus, he was teaching in the synagogue, the unbelief of the people of Nazareth, they transitioned from initial shock, initial just astonishment, like, whoa, what is going on? What's happening? To astonishment, to skepticism. Mm, I don't know about this guy. What is, isn't he not the carpenter? Is he not some of Mary, family here, all that stuff? And it shifts from astonishment, skepticism, to just outright anger like that. From astonishment, skepticism, to anger, really fast. They were offended by what Jesus taught. It says in the Greek, the Greek word for offense is scandalizo, with an Italian accent thrown in there. Scandalizo, where do we get our word scandal from, scandalous from? The people were outraged, they were offended by this scandalous teaching from Jesus. And in the Greek, scandalizo, it translates to be snared or to stumble upon. What Jesus is teaching the people of Nazareth is a stumbling block to them. It is a snare to them. It is a scandal to them. And they get downright angry at him. They take offense. And Jesus responds to the the attitude, the overall attitude of this tiny town. And he says in verse 4, he connects the dots back to the Old Testament prophets. He says, just like the Old Testament prophets of old, Jesus, he too was rejected by his own townspeople. 
Jesus, he was rejected just like the prophets Samuel, Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Hosea, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Y'all get the picture? Rejected by his own people. Rejected by his own hometown. Rejected by his own family. Rejected by his own household. Now what were the Old Testament prophets trying to do? You go back to all of the, the prophetic books of the Old Testament. You go back to Moses. You go back to Elijah and Elisha. What were they doing? They had a word from the Lord and they wanted to tell their people, hey, stop sinning. What you're doing is wrong. You need to stop it. Get some help. <laughs> you have turned away from the Lord and we are here called by God to tell you, turn away from your sin and come back to the Lord. Turn away from your idolatry. Turn away from your sexual immorality. Turn away from your sin and follow the Lord. And how did the people of Israel respond? They rejected them. Read the book of Ezekiel. See how that plays out. Read the book of Jeremiah. See how that plays out. Read the ministry of Jesus. See how that plays out. Jesus is rejected just as the Old Testament prophets of old. Now remember, just what the Master encounters, so too will His disciples. What the Master encounters, so too will the disciples. See, Jesus is about to send out His apostles through Galilee, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And they too will run into people who are hard soil, who are filled with unbelief, who will reject the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, with again, passive apathy. I don't care. No big deal. Doesn't bother me. Doesn't affect me. But they too will also encounter people who will have a hostile, aggressive opposition. Now we hear from church tradition that everybody minus the Apostle John was put to death because of what? Why were they put to death? It wasn't because they were caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. It was because they were sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with people. It took their lives, just as it took Jesus' life. Now this isn't here to scare you. I'm not up here to terrify you. But what the Master encounters, so too will His disciples. That means this was a warning to His apostles that is a warning to us as believers in Christ in this room that we will run into this. This should not be a surprise. We should not be stepping back as scandalous, scandalizo, and go, why are people angry at me? Why are people hostile to me? Why are people rude and mean and saying disgusting things about me when all I'm trying to do is to share the good news of Jesus Christ? This should not be a surprise with us. Jesus will tap on Mark chapter 6 and go, I was rejected in my own hometown. My own townspeople tried to throw me off a cliff my own people yelled, crucify, crucify, crucify. We should not expect anything different. What the Master encounters, so too will His disciples. 
So unbelief, it ignores the obvious. Unbelief, it focuses on the irrelevant. Unbelief is easily offended. And then lastly, unbelief hinders ministry work. Let's read verse 5 and 6. It says, And Jesus could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Now, let's just clarify this for a little bit, because one can read this passage and go, aha, there is a way to stop the kingdom of God advancing. There is a way that makes God go, oh, 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 I can't do anything. One could read in this passage and say, oh, I have unlocked the key of what stops God from moving, and that is unbelief. And that is not the case. That is not the case at all. Rather, because of the people's unbelief, it impacted what Jesus did or did not do in the little town of Nazareth. See, with a broken heart, Jesus chose not to do any miracles in Nazareth with the exception of just healing a few people. And because unbelief has no power and authority over the ministry of Jesus, the power and the authority and the wisdom of Jesus, Jesus, of course, he was able to heal a couple of people. But just to be clear, unbelief did not keep Jesus from doing miraculous ministry work. does not hinder the work of the advancement of the kingdom of God. And here's the reason why Jesus did not do miracles in the town of Nazareth. One, because miracles were to confirm the truth of the gospel. That miracles authenticated what Jesus was saying. The truth of the gospel. It was there to confirm the truth. It also was to reveal himself as Lord and Messiah. And then lastly, it was to lead sinners to saving faith. But because the people of Nazareth, their hearts were set in stone with rejection, with opposition, with, with offensiveness against Jesus, miracles... They weren't necessary. See, Jesus had heartbreak in his hometown. Can you imagine with me for a moment as Jesus leaves Nazareth and he knows everybody. He knows everybody. He knows the children, the parents, the grandparents, all of the above. And can you imagine as he leaves the town of Nazareth and he looks back, can you imagine the heartbreak that he has? for his people, for the people that he grew up with, he walked with, he helped them, he served them, he laughed with them, he cried with them. And when it came down to sharing the truth of the gospel, that they are sinners, that they are bound as enemies of God, that they need a Savior, they need a Redeemer, a Redeemer, and that is him, and they say no, can you imagine just the, the ache in his bones as he walks away with eyes full of tears, with heartbreak in his heart, to walk away from his town because they said no. Now to wrap up, I've got a couple of questions to ask you. With Mark chapter 6, verse 1 through 6, was Jesus a failure? Y'all are in church. Y'all know the answer. Let me ask it again. Was Jesus a failure? Thank you. 
Jesus went to Nazareth. He shared the truth of the gospel and they said no. He met his own people with hard hearts. Hard soil. Just to share a story, I was in Louisville, Kentucky. We were at Fuge Camp and I got to share the gospel with a lady. Her name is Tony. Miss Tony, she's in her 50s. She still lives in Louisville, Kentucky. And this was over the summertime at Fuge Camp. And it was just a random meeting. We were on our way somewhere else to mow somebody else's lawn, and we noticed that she was mowing her own lawn in the dead of heat. And we stopped and creepily asked, like, hey, can we mow your grass for free? <laughs> we also got candy in the van. Do you want to go in there? No, I'm just kidding. We didn't do that. Um, but we just asked, hey, can we mow your lawn? So the kiddos, they went on to mowing, had an opportunity to share the gospel with this lady, super sweet lady. She said no to the gospel. She said no. Was I a failure? Was I a failure? Was I supposed to save her? No. Well, let me ask you this. If Jesus wasn't a failure at Nazareth, and if I wasn't a failure at sharing the gospel with Miss Tony, then why would we believe that we are a failure at sharing the gospel when people say no? Now let me ask you this question. What is the real failure? If you don't go. If you don't go and share the gospel with anybody, that is where the failure lies. Is when Jesus says, go and make great the name of Jesus. Go and make disciples. And you say, no, that is the failure. Jesus was rejected in Nazareth. You will be too. But it's not all bleak. And it's not all sad. I'm not up here to give you a sad story playing the saddest, the smallest, saddest violin. Because as I said earlier, even though this message seems hard and bleak and dark, there are silver linings with this story. Number one, Jesus is with you always. Go and make great the name of Jesus and lo and behold, I am with you always. That the reaction of people, though they may vary widely, they have not done anything different as the Master has encountered. Remember, as what the Master encounters, so will His disciples. There is nothing that people can throw your way that Jesus has not first gone through. There is nothing so hurtful, so terrifying, so, so just absolute evil that could be pressed upon you that Jesus has not encountered as well. Jesus is with us. And then on top of that, you will, if you're faithful, and you say yes to Jesus and making great the name of Jesus, you maybe, just maybe, will run into some good soil. And I don't know about you, fellow Christians, but that pumps me up. I will take a million rejections for that one yes. I want Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I will go through the ends of the earth for that one. Will you? Will you do that? Will you say yes? Will you run into good soil? Because the failure is not going at all. Now let me ask you this before we close. Jesus' heart broke. 
for his people, for his own hometown? Are your hearts breaking for somebody who you know and you know really, really, really well? Does your heart break for somebody who doesn't know who Jesus is? Does your heart just ache so much because they don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? I have many in my back pocket who I pray for time and time and time again. I share the gospel with them, and it's always met, it's always met with a resounding no. It hasn't been hostile yet, but it's still it's hard soil. Are you praying for these people? Are you sharing with them as much as you can? Are your hearts breaking? See, a couple of things before we have a time of invitation. Something to remember, something that I want you to hold on to from this bleak and dark and kind of depressing story for just a moment. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. God is in control. God is at work. The promise is the kingdom of God will overcome the kingdom of this world. That he is reaching people from the, for the gospel right here, right now, to the ends of the earth. And the question is, do you want to be a part of that? Do you want to participate in kingdom work? Now that's not necessarily a call into ministry. That's a call in just living day to day as a brother and sister in Christ. That is to partake in ministry work. Do you want to be a part of that? Because the kingdom of, of God is at hand. And God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. He is working. And he will finish what he starts. This morning, let me ask you a few questions and we'll have invitation. Number one, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Is he a carpenter? Is he the son of Mary? Is he just one of many children in the town of Nazareth? Is he a guy with just historical fact? Is he a guy that people are looney tunes about? Who is Jesus to you? C.S. Lewis says it best when he says that people will believe Jesus in three ways. Either he's a liar, that he didn't tell the truth the whole time and he knew it. He's a lunatic where he didn't tell the truth and had no idea that he wasn't telling the truth. Or he is Lord. And he was telling the truth the whole time. Who's Jesus to you? Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he Lord? Last question. What kind of soil are you? What kind of soil are you? Are you good soil? Are you growing and maturing in your faith in Christ? Are you actively serving in your church? Are you making great the name of Jesus everywhere you go? Are you good soil? Or are you thorny soil? Or man, the gospel sounds really good. I'll come in, I'll punch in my ticket every now and then. I'll cross that box off, but hey, I've got better things to do. I've got distractions that are way more important than this. Are you thorny soil? Are you shallow soil? That, yeah, the gospel sounds good, sounds great, sounds awesome, but mm, it's hard. 
People are mean. Persecution happens and I, it gets in my way. I'm out. Or even worse, are you hard soil? Were you dragged here this morning, kicking and screaming, going, I don't want to listen to anything this guy says. This long-haired, crazy guy's nuts. This whole gospel thing, pay for me. What kind of soil are you? In just a moment, we're going to have a hymn, sing a hymn of invitation. I want you to ask yourself these couple of questions. Who's Jesus to you? What kind of soil are you? And then lastly, are you heartbroken over the people you know who doesn't know Jesus Christ as as their Lord and Savior? I want you all to ask yourselves these things. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this morning, this time to gather into your house, to worship you, to honor you, to glorify you. Lord, to hear a truth that, that really pricks the heart, that hurts, that cuts to the quick. Lord, but your truth be taught. Lord, that we may learn as the disciples have learned. Lord, the unbelief is out there, that we will run into people who will say no to the gospel. But Lord, I pray that you embolden your people to keep going, just as Jesus kept going, just as the apostles kept going. Lord, I pray that your people will keep going, keep advancing the kingdom of God, keep sharing the great news of Jesus Christ, to live faithfully, to live humbly, and have praise on their lips. Lord, I pray that you bless this time of decision. Lord, I pray if there are decisions to be made this morning, whether it is salvation, whether it is about baptism, whether it's simply to just come forward and just be, to ask for prayer or to pray for somebody, Lord, just may this time be open for your people to respond, for people to respond. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.